Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll look at how the debt limit deal has affected the fiscal year 2024 appropriations process and assess what might happen if Congress fails to complete action on its 12 annual appropriations bills before the September 30 deadline. Our guest is David Lerman, editor of Congressional Quarterly's Budget Tracker, which is a daily roundup of key federal spending and budget issues. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join the conversation. Well, our guest, Dave Lerman, is a familiar voice on this program. He has an extensive background covering the federal budget. Before becoming editor of CQ's Budget Tracker, uh, Lerman served as a national security reporter for Bloomberg News, where he covered defense spending and uh, foreign policy. David, Tori, and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Thanks, Bob. Good to be here, Bob. It wasn't supposed to work out this way, uh, but here we are again. Uh, it's, it's the August recess. Congress has left town without passing any of the 12 annual appropriations bills. And uh, now it has very little time left when they come back in September to get the job done. So that has many people, including us, wondering if uh, Congress is going to be able to avoid a government shutdown by the end of September. Um David, uh, you know, when they passed the debt limit deal, uh, everybody had hopes that they set spending caps for 20 uh, fiscal year 24 and 25. And that was going to make everything go more smoothly. <laughs> and, uh, I yeah. guess not. So uh, tell us uh, <laughs> what what is the big picture here with uh, what's going on with the appropriations bills? Yeah, well, I mean, every year we face this risk of the government shutdown at the end of September, right? Because they never get these bills passed on time. I think the last time appropriations were passed on time was something like 1996. I mean, you know, it's like almost 30 years ago now. <laughs> so we're, we're used to, we're, we're now used to this annual threat business of, of will the government shut down. But I have to say, I've been doing this since, I think since about 2015. And I don't recall it being this tough and this dangerous and this polarized since I've been doing it. And, and the reason you it's really has nothing to do with the bills themselves, which are very typical of all the appropriations bills each year. The reason is the politics behind it. And you have to, you have to understand where they're coming from now because you've got this new Republican majority in the house uh, this year, who took power under Kevin McCarthy, who were really prepared to do battle over spending against the Democratic Senate and against President Biden. And they were real. They came into office really eager to make their mark and try to prove themselves as some kind of you know fiscal warriors who are going to be tough on spending. 
And so you're going to you had this huge clash from the beginning that they were determined to cut back spending. In fact, if you remember, McCarthy won the speakership by promising his his hard right flank, these, you know, the so-called Freedom Caucus, that they were he would have to pare back discretionary spending back to the fiscal 2022 levels. It's like taking a $130 billion whack out of the discretionary spending pie. It was huge. He had to do it because he needed their votes to become speaker. And even then it took him 15 rounds of voting to become speaker. So that's how the year started. And you could see from there, there would be this huge disconnect with the Democratic controlled Senate, where they need bipartisan support to pass spending bills. Right. And so it, the dynamic was set from the get go here when McCarthy became speaker, that that was going to be the conundrum we faced. Now, you're right, though, Bob, there was a brief shining moment back around Memorial Day um, when they passed the debt limit deal that it actually looked like my God, they might have appropriations figured out because they passed this law suspending the debt limit. And folks might remember, in order to get that passed with Republican votes, they had to agree to spending caps for the coming fiscal year. And so you had to do that in a bipartisan way to get the votes in both chambers. And they, the amazing thing is they were able to do it as polarized and dysfunctional as this Congress was. I actually think it's a credit to McCarthy that he was able to negotiate with Biden successfully, despite the thin margin he has. And he actually got a deal um, of bipartisan spending caps for the coming fiscal year. They were pretty tough, but it, it basically held held spending relatively flat uh, for the coming fiscal year, which still amounts to cuts when you adjust for inflation and everything. Um, but that that was the deal. And there was. There was this shining optimism for maybe like a week when that passed that, wow, appropriations is now back on track because the, usually the toughest thing to do appropriations is getting the overall spending limits, right? Once you get that bipartisan agreement on the spending limits, the appropriators can usually do their thing and write their bills and start pushing them out and getting going. Um, usually they're hamstrung for months and months like last year because there, there was no bipartisan agreement on the overall limits. So here we were in June and we had these bipartisan spending limits. And for about a week, I thought, wow, they can actually get appropriations moving now. We might be OK. And like for maybe the first time in decades, there's even a slight outside chance of passing bills on time. As I say, that optimism lasted for maybe a week, I think. And then <laughs> then what we saw was the House revolt. Right. You saw the Freedom Caucus rise up. They really felt betrayed by this debt limit deal. And there was real anger. And so much so that they brought the House to a complete standstill. I don't know if folks remember, if you don't if you're not watching Congress every day, as I do, you probably wouldn't even know. But there were there were one or two days. I think it was two days that the House was com brought completely to a halt. They were unable to conduct business. They were unable to take up bills because. The Freedom Caucus folks, not all of them, but a good chunk of them, enough of them, enough of them, <laughs> right, voted down a rule they needed, which is the procedural thing to be able to take up legislation. And so the House went into recess. They were just in a standstill. 
Uh, that was pretty unprecedented. That's a, that was a huge sign of trouble. I mean, uh, right. people need to understand how very, very rare it is to vote against a rule because uh, right. for, usually for the, the, for the party in power, the party yeah. in power usually acts in unison to approve the rule. And so they knew they weren't going to get any help from Democrats on that. The Democrats had no intention of 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 voting for that rule. But because Republicans only have a like a four seat margin there, they need practically every Republican to vote for it. And I think there were I think there were 11 who voted against it. So, I mean, that sunk it and, and they were in a standstill. And the only way McCarthy was able to break that deadlock was he went back and pivoted yet again and promised the Freedom Caucus guys and said, look, we passed bipartisan spending caps, but that's just going to be the maximum ceiling. That doesn't mean we have to spend that much, right? All of a sudden, he was telling everybody that was just the ceiling. It's not really the spending levels we agreed to. And that we're actually going to write bills in the House that are well below that, that do pair it back to the fiscal 2022 level. That's what satisfied the Freedom Caucus. That's what allowed the House to get moving again. But that came at a huge price. And that sets up the clash that we have today, Bob, right? Because because now the House and Senate are on a collision course where the Senate is writing its bills to the bipartisan spending levels that were agreed to. But the House Republicans are writing bills much lower than that. And when you saw that when they issued their spending allocations for all the 12 annual bills and the House levels are about one hundred nineteen billion dollars lower than the Senate levels. So that was a huge disconnect that they have to reconcile. Now, they make up I don't want to get too technical on the, on this show. I don't think they make up some of that difference. It gets hard to explain, but but the House leaders are willing to do these so-called rescissions where they claw back money from previous laws. Like a lot of there was a lot of unused pandemic aid that they could just take back and they want to apply that to some of next year's spending so that they can actually spend a little more without paying for it because the money was already there. And by doing that, they they narrow the gap a little. But the Freedom Caucus guys rose up again and said, no, we don't like what the House Appropriations Committee did, even though it's our own party that wrote the bills. And we don't want to use rescissions like that to pump up spending next year. Even that won't fly. So now what do you do? And that's the position they're in where these bills may they all got out of the Appropriations Committee, but they may not even get on the House floor. Just before they recessed, they were finally supposed to take up two bills in the House on the House floor. They only could take up one. They had a punt on the agriculture bill because there was too much opposition to the extra spending that would have come from these rescissions. Right. So so they punted on that. They could only take up one of the 12 bills before they left town for the long August recess. So, David, I got a question. David, I got a quick question for you. Um, going back to the the debt limit deal and these spending caps, um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is approaching these these caps as, as you said, a ceiling, not right. a floor. Is that an unusual approach? Um, I mean, because we've had these kind of deals before. Is what he is what he do what he's doing here? Is that unusual? Is it 
Is he breaking the law? Is he violating the deal? <laughs> well, breaking the law, no. Uh, they are they are caps. So it's not that it's not that you're required by law to spend every last penny up to that cap. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's within his rights, but it's certainly um, I mean, it certainly wasn't the understanding that Democrats had going into the deal. I mean, and I think typically when they set those caps, it's generally understood that those are going to be the overall limits that they use. Right. I mean, because otherwise I don't think they would have gotten the deal. I mean, so that's why after the Freedom Caucus had that blowback, Democrats said they felt hoodwinked. I mean, they're the House Democrats. They said, look, you guys agreed to this. We expected to meet these spending levels and that's how we could get get moving. And now you're going back on your word and you're saying, no, you're going to spend a lot less. I mean, that that didn't fly with them at all. And they were angry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, he's not breaking the law, but um, it really upset the apple cart and made it. You know, that's why you, these these bills have, will have zero support from House Democrats, mm-hmm. which is why McCarthy needs every last Republican vote he can get in order to push them through the House floor. And he doesn't have the votes. I mean, he he had to pull back that agriculture bill because the votes weren't there. The only one they could pass is the what's typically the easiest of the 12 bills. Right. Because it funds the Veterans Department and no one really wants to vote against veterans, uh, much less Republicans. Um, and the spending on that in that bill wasn't really controversial. Um, now, Democrats voted about against it on mass because of all the social policy riders that are complicating mm-hmm. this process, too, we could talk about. Um, but that's the one that's the one bill they squeaked through on a party line vote. Um, and so then that's all they could do. Yeah, it sounds like we've basically got three parties in the House right now. Right. You've got the House Freedom Caucus. Republicans and you have House Democrats. There, there are basically three parties in the House right yeah, now, I not two right. parties. And it's making it hard to create a coalition to get legislation across the, the line. Is that basically the, the, the top line view here? I think that's right. The Freedom Caucus folks are really determined. You know, it's a band of about 30 to 40 uh, hard right conservatives. We don't know exactly because even their membership list is considered a state secret for some reason. They won't disclose <laughs> who's a member. Um, but, (laughs) but 30 to 40 of those members are a lot because McCarthy only can lose four votes and then he's sunk if he loses more than that. Um, so they are in a position of power and they know they're in a position of power and they're determined to use their leverage every last way they can. And, you know, hovering over McCarthy this whole time is this, is this other rule he agreed to when he became speaker that any single member can to, can make this motion to vacate the chair, which means to try to oust McCarthy from the speakership. Uh, and there would have to be a floor vote on that. Now, I don't, I don't think the anger is quite to that level yet. No one's tried to do that yet. I don't think they will, at least for now. But I'm sure that factors into his thinking because he knows he could lose a speakership if he if he makes the Freedom Caucus too mad. You know, uh, he's at risk. So he has this incredibly fine tightrope to walk here and and it's going to be a real struggle. And I don't know now that any of these other other bills can can pass on the House floor. And, you know, of course, now we're in an August recess. By the time they come back in September, 
they're running out of time because September 30 is the end of the fiscal year and they're going to need to, to pivot to a stopgap funding measure just to avoid a shutdown. So it's, well, it's I mean, the, the, a real mess. Yeah, the, the difficulty is he was able to get the debt ceiling bill and the caps in the debt ceiling bill through because he could work with the Democrats. And so the Democrats right. provided a great deal of votes for that uh, so he could right. get around the Freedom Caucus. But he can't do that. He's not going to get any Democratic support for any of the appropriations bills. So he needs to he's got a different constituency right. that he needs to satisfy. And I don't know how the heck he's going to do it. <laughs> uh, and he can't and he can't get any Democratic votes for those bills, Bob, because, the, you know, they were they were extremely partisan bills, I think, by any objective yeah. measure, because they're not abiding by the spending cap limits. They're going way under, which angered a lot of Democrats, particularly, you know, I think the Democrats most treasured bill there is the health care and education bill, you know, the labor HHS education bill. Um, that's dear to the hearts of many Democrats. And that took the biggest whack out of these allocations. Almost half of the almost half of the cut really came from that bill. Uh, because that's the bill Republicans really love to hate. They think there's too much <laughs> extreme social spending in that bill. And and so but it's true, really, of all the bills, because they're they're loaded up with all of these social policy riders. I mean, if you watched, uh, I was struck when they marked up the defense bill. You would think when you take up the defense bill, there'd be a lot of debate about defense. Uh, there'd be a lot <laughs> of debate about you know, how many troops do we need? What's that cost? What weapon systems do we really need? What's the price of those? How You know, when when do we need them? What is the Pentagon requested? That's not what the markup was about. I mean, it was mostly about can you fly a pride flag at a military base? Can you pay to let women troops go out of state for an abortion? Can you teach critical race theory? Could you should we let drag queens into military bases to to recite children's stories? <laughs> I mean, really, it, that's what it was about. It That's what's animating the, the, the right base. It's all of these social policy, the culture war stuff that totally, of course, antagonize Democrats. And so they are just lockstep against all of these bills, both for the spending levels and for these social policy writers, that it's just a non-starter for them. And I just uh, uh, before bringing Steve in, or we may be getting close to a break here, but just to give the Senate their due, they're not having these problems on the Senate side. All 12 bills have passed, as I understand it, through the, the committee, not on the floor, but on through the committee on a bipartisan basis. So it's it's like the debt ceiling worked for half of the the deal worked for at least half of the body. Yeah, that's a good point, Bob, because it, it is remarkable to, to watch the House and then to watch the Senate Appropriations Committee, because it is a totally different story there where there's remarkable, un, almost unanimity. Uh, the, the, the committee easily, swiftly, by overwhelming margins, passed all 12 of their bills before the recess, which is a credit to them. That, but, you know, the Senate going in knows that it can't do anything without bipartisan cooperation. So the whole attitude is different there from the beginning. The House knows it can ram through bills on party line votes. That is not an option in the Senate where you have the filibuster. So they know they need bipartisan cooperation. And the new leadership in the Senate Appropriations Committee, you have uh, Patty Murray, the, the new chair, uh, the Washington Democrat, and you have Susan Collins, the main Republican, uh, who have been working 
working really hand in glove to their credit um, and push through all 12 bills without barely a hiccup. And that's because they agreed that they would write their bills to the bipartisan spending caps. So there was bipartisan you know, buy in there from the get go. And and you don't have the the extreme type of Freedom Caucus guys that are in the House, in the Senate. The Senate is more moderate by nature because these folks are representing an entire state. Um, so they were able to swiftly pass those bills. But having said that, OK, they got them out of committee, but none of the bills have made it to the Senate floor yet. And here we are. It's go, they're going to come back in September. There just won't be the time to take them up. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with David Lerman, editor of CQ's Budget Tracker, about the federal government's fiscal year 2024 appropriations bills. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with David Lerman, editor of CQ's Budget Tracker, about the federal government's fiscal year 2024 appropriations bills. Uh, Steve. Yeah, so we, we've been talking about the, the culture wars that are going on in the defense or the in the discretionary budget uh, before the break. And I wanted to sort of maybe back up and talk a little bit about the, the you've got the, the cultural conservatives and then you have fiscal conservatives. And some there's some overlap between the two. But from a purely fiscal perspective, you know, when you look at the discretionary budget over the last, say, 10 years, um, we were spending a little over a trillion dollars uh, back in 2014. Um during the COVID pandemic, discretionary spending rose to almost two trillion. It was about one point nine trillion. So the the debt limit deal, where they set a cap on discretionary spending uh, for for next year of twenty twenty four, is about one point six trillion. So you know, from a fiscal per- perspective, you know, is it appropriate to look at you know where we were ten years ago at a trillion dollars and say, look, we've gone from a trillion to one point six trillion as our target? That looks like a pretty big increase. Alternatively, if you go back to the pandemic and say, well, we used to spend two trillion and we've got to squeeze that down to the 1.6. So, you know, what's what's the better way to look at that? I mean, is as spending really gotten out of hand and the 1.6 trillion is really more than generous? Or should you look at the 1.6 trillion and say, well, relative to what we were spending during the pandemic, that's really, you know, starving the government. And so what what's what's sort of the perception there among the members and you know, is is one point six really too much or really too little? <laughs> yeah, well, that obviously depends on what party you're in, right? But I mean, it's true that discretionary spending really spiked during the pandemic because they there was something like five trillion dollars worth of aid they pumped up over the last couple of years there um, for the COVID nineteen pandemic. So you did see a big spike uh, in spending and in deficits, and then. That aid, though, has has now sort of run out, which is why Biden can take credit for a dramatic drop in the deficit, which is really just because a lot of that pandemic aid spending has run out. It's not because of any hard cuts they made. Um, but I, I have to say, you know, Steve, if you've talked to the Congressional Budget Office, discretionary just spending just isn't the reason that we're facing these huge deficits in the future. It's almost beside the point. 
I mean, it's entitlement spending that's that's caught that's that's the reason for these for these huge deficits. They were projecting something like twenty trillion dollars of deficits over the next decade, I think. Why? It's not really because of discretionary spending, which is basically flat or rising with inflation. It's entitlements. You've got an aging society. You've got rising health care costs. And, and those demographics mean you've got soaring costs in Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. And that's where all the big money is. And I think the reason you see the House conservatives laser focused on these discretionary spending battles is just because that's the easier battle to wage because it's the money they directly control through annual appropriations. So if they want to make a mark as a fiscal conservative, they try to clamp down on the discretionary spending, which is only about a third of the federal budget anyway. But they want to they want everyone to see them clamping down on discretionary spending. So it looks like they're going to, you know, rein in overall spending and be tough. Um, but unless you tackle the big so entitlement programs, you're really not making that much of a dent in these huge projected structural deficits that we've, we're facing in the next few decades. I wanted to uh, talk about what happens if they fail to reach an agreement here uh, and uh, kind of leading into that. What is the gap between the House and Senate? I, I think you you mentioned, uh, you know, that they're working off of different numbers. So as we think about uh, what would happen, we should first think about uh, how far apart uh, they they have to close. Yeah, they're pretty far apart, Bob. It gets a little complicated because of that rescission stuff I was talking about earlier, whether they're going to be allowed to count that, you know, take that extra money from from previous laws and pump it back into spending. Um, in terms of strictly the spending allocations that that each side has to work with, uh, they're about one hundred nineteen billion dollars apart. I mean, that's not chump change. That's that's a pretty good chunk of money there that would fund a hell of a lot of stuff. So that's a wide gap. Now, as I say, depending on if they use these rescissions, the gap would narrow a little bit um, because what, what the House leadership wants to do now is claw back some of that pandemic aid and other unspent money and apply it to next year's spending bills. So that closes the gap. You know, they were counting on something like $115 billion worth of rescissions they could tap. So that would really dramatically close the gap. Although, on the other hand, the Senate made the gap a little wider on their own, despite the bipartisan cooperation, because you might remember at that last Senate Appropriations Committee markup, they announced there were going to be almost $14 billion in emergency spending that we're going to tack on to the Senate bills. So that gets them around these caps, too. Right. So so overall, I think our estimates are they would be about 70 billion dollars apart between the two sides, I think, was our estimate. Uh, that's still pretty huge. And of course, if the Freedom Caucus guys get their way, it's it could be as much as I think we calculated one hundred and ninety billion dollars apart. That's if you really you know, you couldn't use the rescissions. You had to go way back to the fiscal twenty twenty two level. So anywhere between 70 billion up to one hundred and ninety billion. So that's a uh, that's a pretty wide gap. And it, it sort of has me wondering whether they really had a deal when they said they had a deal. <laughs> there seemed to be some. Perhaps not uh, thoroughly nailed down uh, assumptions there, but but let's go from there and say that's a pretty wide gap and not much time left. Uh, what what happens at the end of the fiscal year if they have not 
been able to pass these appropriation bills? Well, then obviously you could have a partial government shutdown if, if they did nothing. But that's why once they get back in September, the focus is going to pivot to passing some kind of stopgap measure that just extends current funding levels uh, for probably a few months is what they normally do. Um if they can pass that. But, you know, even that in this environment is going to be a pretty heavy lift um, because the Freedom Caucus folks aren't going to like that that much. And there's also this this, uh, you know, part of the debt limit deal had a provision where if they don't pass these bills by January 1st, uh, they would have to do a one percent across the board cut. And so you may see an effort to you know, to uh, pass a stopgap, but with the 1% cut or some kind of cut worked into it, and then Democrats are going to object to that. And, uh, you know, you could see this getting pretty hairy. Plus, we haven't even talked about what could get attached to a stop. Once you put a stopgap funding measure on the floor, all kinds of things can get attached to it because it's sort of the must-pass vehicle. And there's a push building to do a supplemental emergency spending bill, right? And we've been looking uh, because the disaster relief fund is actually running out of cash this month in August. Um, you've got hurricanes. You've got the Florida lawmakers already worried about hurricane relief and that there's not going to be enough money in this fund uh, to provide that federal aid. And who knows when the, the White House is going to prepare a new request for Ukraine aid. Um border security, you can see uh, there will be a pent up demand, at least in the Senate, for for uh, emergency spending beyond this. And then do they attach that to the stopgap funding measure? And then the House objects to that. And, you know, this could be chaos, um, which is why a lot of people are fearing, my God, maybe the whole government just shuts down for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Even in the case of, of just passing a clean CR, I think is problematic, right? Where there aren't any riders attached. If everybody agrees, okay, we're just going to pass a clean CR to keep the government open, that's a problem just because the CR continues last year's, not only last year's spending, but last year's policies, right? And there are a lot right. of House Republicans that object to policies that were implemented last year when Democrats controlled the House, the Senate and the White House. <laughs> right. And and for the Freedom Caucus folks, uh, just continuing last year's levels means or the current year's levels means you're continuing at spending levels that they oppose that are that are much higher for domestic spending than they than they want to see. So why are they going to support a, a, a stopgap funding measure, what you call the CR, the continuing resolution for the budget wonks out there? Um you know, they have no incentive. And we even had a few Freedom Caucus members say the other day, you know, a government shutdown isn't really that bad. People won't even notice it. So they're not even some of them are not even afraid of a government shutdown. They weren't here, of course, to live through the past government shutdowns where, you know, neither party looks good when there's a government shutdown. It blows back on both of them. Anyone who's been through it before is eager to avoid doing it again. But for new members, for new members of Congress who are very conservative, I don't think that's much of a deterrent for them. Right. They'd welcome the fight. So who knows? It's going to be a real battle just to get a CR passed. You're right. <laughs> and, and then uh, because the, the, the thing in the debt ceiling bill that sequestration you talked about, that that mechanism doesn't seem to be having much of an effect on the debate. I mean, they 
you know, the, the threat was that if you d- had this CR, you didn't get the bills done, you'd have this across the board spending cut. But that's that's so far out in the future. And, uh, you know, I think people right. are not really taking that particularly seriously. They seem to want to have the fight over a shutdown. Um, well, I think it's because it's too early, Bob. Yeah. The, the, the deadline for that would be to pass the bills by June, by January 1st. So it's a little early to worry, I think, about that. One percent across the board cut threat, and actually, that language is technically worded. Those cuts wouldn't even that across the board thing doesn't even apply until next April. Yeah. So, so actually, they have a lot of time there. So, so that threat it still looms, but it's not the immediate. Uh, it's not the immediate crisis. They've got more problems than that before we get to that point. Well, absolutely, and they can always shut it off if they want to when they pass the appropriation sure. bills. They can. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with David Lerman, editor of CQ's Budget Tracker, about the federal government's fiscal year 2024 appropriations bills. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with David Lerman, editor of CQ's Budget Tracker, about the federal government's fiscal year 2024 appropriations bills and the prospects for a government shutdown. Steve, let me uh, turn to you. Yeah, so just very briefly, going back to the, uh, you mentioned earlier that the uh, the House uh, Republicans had insisted on a number of uh, sort of cultural related provisions. There's, there's issues of abortion, there's the transgender care issues, uh, I think some tobacco related issues. So they've added all of these policy writers to the uh, the House appropriation bills. Obviously the House Democrats are opposed, but in order to get these bills passed through the Congress and over to the president, you've got to get the House Republicans to go along. And I guess my question is, I'm sorry, the House, the Senate Republicans to go along. And it seems to me that the Senate has marked up their bills. They've avoided most of these issues. I mean, are we likely to see more tension between the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans as we go forward? Yeah, that's a good point, Steve. I mean, the Senate bills are relatively clean compared to those House bills with all those all those uh, ideological riders. Um which sets up a brutal if they ever get there, it sets up a brutal House Senate conference, because how are you going to compromise that? Um, you know, well, <laughs> one side has to give on those and it's not clear how they resolve that and, and get enough votes to push these through or to push a compromise through. Uh, but although it's pretty clear, there's no way that those policy writers get through the Senate. I mean, it just, it just can't happen. So the Senate Republicans really will have to talk to their House Republican colleagues to say, look, you know, now it's time for the rubber to meet the road and we just can't pass appropriations unless you give up on some of these some of these riders. So so whether they're willing to do that, I don't know. I mean, that's that's the million dollar question. Right. Right. Because if they're eager to if they're eager to just take a stand uh, at the risk of not having full year appropriations, they could go that route. Uh, they got some other work to do also, uh, Tori. Well, I'd, I'd say let's let's be optimistic for a moment and let's assume that the House and Senate can get a, con- a continuing resolution, a temporary funding measure passed 
in September. If, if passed as prologue, that probably kicks the spending debate to December. You know, Christmas is always a good uh, forcing event for members of Congress to get their work done. Um, and I'm real curious to, you know, if, if we're waiting that long to get spending bills across the line, it means we've probably delayed on a lot of other things, too. Um, you know, there, as Bob was talking o- offline, you know, they've got several authorization uh, bills that have to get passed, passed this year, the Farm Bill, National Defense Reauthorization Bill. But there's also some some tax policy that's been hanging out there. Um, you know, every year there's some you know little straggling tax you know, business tax extenders, et cetera, but there's some other uh, potential bigger tax items for the end of this year. I was wondering if there was anything, any tax policy that you think might have legs at the end of this year that goes into sort of a, a kitchen sink, you know, throw all the 12 appropriation bills in there and throw all these authorization bills in there and, oh yeah, let's throw a tax title in there as well. Are there any uh, tax policy measures that you see having legs for this year? Well, I mean, potentially, but it's it's pretty tough right now. I mean, you, you saw the House Ways and Means Committee did pass a tax bill in June um, with only Republican votes uh, that gave a temporary boost to the standard deduction and some immediate R&D expensing for businesses. But they paid for that mostly by repealing all of the clean energy tax credits the Democrats had passed last year. So there's no way that's going to that bill is going to go nowhere because, you know, the Democrats will certainly oppose that. And I'm not even sure it gets passed with only Republican votes on the House floor, Tory, because um, there's a good band of these Republicans from high tax states. Think California, New York, New Jersey, um, who are really adamant that they want to repeal this limit that was set on state and local tax deductions, what's called the SALT uh, deduction for people who are familiar. Um, folks might remember back during the, tr- the Trump tax cuts of 2017, to keep that price tag down a little, they imposed a $10,000 limit on how much you can du- deduct on your federal returns for state and local taxes. There's a big effort in these high tax states to lift that limit. And you, you, we had, I think they think there's like six to 10 Republicans that have vowed uh, that they will oppose any tax package if it doesn't lift that salt limit. So what does that do? They can't pass that package that way. I mean, and, and there's a good number of Republicans who don't like lifting that limit. So that alone could sink this tax package. There's some t- there is bipartisan support for some kind of of, uh, you know, full expensing for the R&D. But Democrats want to package that with an expanded child tax credit, um, which I think most Republicans are leery of. It's the it's the it's the expanded child tax credit that we had during the pandemic that was temporary. The Democrats would like to bring back. It's much more generous than the current credit. Um, So you could you could envision some sort of bipartisan compromise at the end of the year, I think, that would package the R&D credit for businesses with an expanded child tax credit. Um, Problem is, it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. If if these if these conservatives are adamant about bringing down deficits, that could wipe out their savings if they're not going to pay for it. Um, I think the expanded child tax credit was something like one hundred billion dollars a year as a cost. So, I mean, there's a lot of problems there now. And whether they're whether the 
whether the place will be civil enough by December to come up with a bipartisan deal like that, I don't know. I, um, yes, they could stick that into some kind of omnibus package at the end of the year if the deal is there in time. I, I, I'm not sure I'm too optimistic at the moment, um, but that's, I guess, something to watch for. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that uh, I was thinking about is um, and it it came up this week because the White House has announced that they're going to form a debt limit uh, reform task force, uh, an internal uh, process. Uh, And we're talking a lot about the, you know, what's happening with the appropriations bills this year come out of uh, the debt limit deal that was done back in, in in the spring. And, you know, it, to me, it's still sort of a, a question of what you what do you get out of the debt limit? I mean, this what trying to use a debt limit to leverage some sort of important agreement just doesn't seem to be worth the, the risk of default. We get very, very close to default and then you get a deal that's a very modest deal on appropriations. And even that, you know, it's we're, we're doing the same thing now on appropriations that we would have done if there had not been a debt ceiling deal, having a, a, a shutdown, uh, you know, a showdown over the appropriations limit. So I, uh, no, know, that's, that- a, that's a good point, Bob. And there is, there is talk, you know, about just abolishing the debt limit once and for all, or maybe setting, finding a, an alternative measure, maybe measuring debt as a percentage of the economy, as opposed to the strict dollar limit that has to keep getting raised. And there's a good argument for doing that. I mean, one thing we know about the debt limit that we've had for uh, something like a century is that it hasn't done much to limit the debt. Um, <laughs> so uh, if what's the point of a debt limit if it doesn't limit the debt? Invariably, they have to raise the limit. Um, and all it does is create these kind of fiscal cliff showdowns that risk throwing the economy and throwing the financial markets into turmoil with the idea that we default on our debt. Uh, Is it really worth that when it doesn't seem to accomplish anything? Um, So Democrats are starting to voice the idea of just abolishing the debt limit, saying it's not worth it. Republicans are pushing back and saying, no, the last thing we want to do is just have no debt limit because it's the one chance they have to sort of call attention to the issue of rising debt and and institute some spending curbs. And and often now, when they raise the debt limit, it is packaged with spending curbs, just like the spending caps we had now in this June deal. Um, So they will not want to part with that leverage. So I do think I do think the debt limit is here to stay. There may be some push, as I say, to find an alternative measure instead of having a strict dollar limit on debt, maybe maybe measured as a percentage of the economy to sort of show what the actual debt burden is at any one time. And then if it breaches a certain percentage, maybe certain triggers could, you know, be kicked in to to curb spending or something. You know, that may be an alternative way of doing it. I I suspect something like that would be the the most likely path to changing it, not not just an outright abolition. Um, But yeah, but the president did form that new task force, which is you're right to bring that up because I think it's an important point. Now that they lived through this this debt limit trauma, which they vowed they would never negotiate over the debt limit. And guess what? They had to negotiate over the debt limit. Um, 
so now they're forming this task force to say, well, let's let's find a way to never have to do this again. Right. The point of this is to say, is there any other way we can do this so we never have to negotiate over the debt limit like this again and and risk default and all that? So I think that's that's what's behind this new task force, whether they come up with much, whether anyone listens to them is, you know, remains to be seen. Well, you know, the, the, there is a. Uh... You know, the the chair and the ranking member of the House Budget Committee announced that they would be working together or getting bipartisan input on budget uh, reforms. And and one of them was the debt limit. I mean, they specifically uh, said that debt limit reform would be you know, on the table for for them. I don't know how far that would go. So not it, in their it, jurisdiction. It, Good luck with it. But it's not in their jurisdiction. <laughs> well, it's it's it, it's interesting to me that. Uh, you know, after this last brush with a uh, uh, a default, uh, there are people talking about, you know, is there a better way to do this? Uh, right. but, but like you, I don't know that anything's going to come out of it, but <laughs> but we'll see. That's actually all the time we have uh, for this week. Uh, I want to thank our guest, David Lerman, editor of CQ's Budget Tracker for his wealth of insights into the appropriations process and what's going on this year and what might happen. Thank you also to Steve and uh, Tori for their input. And uh, I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 